Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Hello, Sabina Brennan here, bringing you a special Science Week edition of Superbrain, sponsored by Science Foundation Ireland. Science Week has been celebrating science in our everyday lives for 25 years. It's become a special week in my calendar, going from event to event, travelling around the country, giving talks or speaking on radio or TV. This year, I'm not going anywhere. Nobody is, because we are all, of course, in lockdown. But that hasn't stopped Science Foundation Ireland. They have transformed Science Week into a brand new digital, virtual, blended format, which means there are lots of live, interactive shows and workshops. Check out scienceweek.ie where you can register for free live events for adults, for children, for families, for everyone really. You can choose from the Pick Your Brain live family quiz with Phil Smith, which has actual prizes to give away. There are a plethora of shows lined up on a variety of topics like Food Oppies Eat Your Science, The Forensic Science Show, Build Your Own Rube Goldberg Machine, And then there's stuff about like tap water and bubbles and kites and microbes and much, much more. And if that wasn't enough, there are a host of regional festivals around the country. And whilst we all love to attend festivals in person, one of the upsides of going virtual during lockdown is that you can attend the regional science festivals in places like Cavan, Cork, Galway, Kerry, Kilkenny, Limerick, Mayo, Sligo, Tip, Wexford, the Midlands and the Southeast from the comfort of your own living room or from the comfort of your own bed, wherever you want. And it doesn't matter whether that living room is in Ireland or not, you can attend those events. So everybody is welcome to log on and enjoy the Science Week events all of which are supported by Science Foundation Ireland, the national body for research investment into science, tech, engineering and math, also known as STEM. Their funding not only supports scientific advancement in research, but also creates jobs and gives industry and enterprise a competitive edge. I am passionate about translating complex science into easy-to-understand information to empower people to be more proactive about their health. Essentially, that's what the Superbrain podcast is all about, really, which is why I'm really proud to be a partner with Science Foundation Ireland for Science Week, because one of their key aims is to empower people of all ages, from all walks of life, to engage with and understand the value of science for individuals and for society. The core theme for Science Week this year is choosing your future with a special focus on how science can improve our lives in the future. There are so many ways that science has improved our lives that I could do an entire podcast series on the topic, probably actually several series. But if we just consider how science has improved our health, the more obvious benefits are medicine, antibiotics, antivirals, cancer therapies, pain relief, anaesthetics, antihistamines, inhalers, steroids, surgery, hip replacements, organ transplants, IVF. The list goes on. Science has also helped us to understand risk factors and relationships 
relationships, such as the relationship between smoking and lung cancer or the risk factors for dementia and other diseases. Science helps us to understand critical points for intervention and treatment. It has helped us to understand genetics and heritability and helped us to do battle with and understand pathogens, bacteria and viruses and how diseases are transmitted. We need science now more than ever to help us to understand and eradicate COVID-19. In everyday life, we benefit from pasteurisation and from safe food manufacturing. Science informs the development of cosmetics, which thankfully are no longer lethal. I mean, women literally used to used to wear makeup to die for because they literally put mercury and lead on their skins and they even used arsenic to create a fashionable pallor, which of course ultimately ended in their demise. Then there's the technology that benefits our health. Techs used in surgery to make artificial limbs, wheelchairs, the list just goes on and on and on. And then we have the science that looks after our health in terms of making us safe, you know, the science in cars, on building sites, in making toys to make sure they're age appropriate and don't poison or cause harm with bits coming off. Every day in thousands of ways we benefit from science. We've developed standards that protect us, standards that are constantly updated and informed by more science and by more research. I am fascinated, as you know, by the human brain and science, particularly the rapid advancement in imaging technology that has occurred over the last 30 years, has given us unprecedented information about how the brain works and how it influences our behaviour, our thinking and our moods. Science has also taught us that the environment that we live in, the things that we do, the experiences that we have and the choices that we make each and every day shape and change our brains. The World Wide Web opened to the public less than 30 years ago and it became ubiquitous in a very, very short period of time. The internet and associated digital technologies and social media platforms have transformed the world in what is, in evolutionary terms, a fraction of a second. It has transformed our lives immeasurably and impacted on our health both directly and indirectly. There is no doubt that it has benefited us in many ways, but there's also no doubt that it has also impacted on our lives in negative ways. I'm particularly interested in how it is impacting on our brains. I find it rather strange that in essence, this incredible force for change was unleashed on the world without any clinical trials, without any safety testing, without any safeguards in place, indeed without any consideration of the consequences intended or otherwise. At the end of the day, the brain is our most important organ. It is highly adaptable, which also makes it highly vulnerable. You can't You know, you can't get a brain transplant and even if you could, who would you be? We are our brains and so the choices we make about our future as individuals and as a society need to acknowledge that and need to consider the impact that the internet, digital technology and social media and whatever new technologies emerge in the future. You know, we really, really do need to consider how they are going to influence and change our brain. So that's what I want to talk about today to celebrate Science Week. I want to start a conversation about making choices informed by science, about technology and the impact that it has on the human brain.
We live in such a high-tech world that it's worth mentioning that at its most fundamental level, technology is knowledge put to use to solve problems or invent useful tools. That's what technology is. And knowledge is really anything acquired through experience, through learning or through education. We can't predict the future, although we can make informed predictions based on the past. But we do know from experience that the future will always be shaped by the past. So any choices about technology and the brain will need to be informed by knowledge and by past experience and scientific research. When it comes to technology and the brain, there simply hasn't been enough research aimed at understanding how communications technology in particular is shaping our brains. In this episode of Superbrain, I explore what the past can tell us about how technology has influenced the evolution of the brain, how technology has informed our understanding of the brain. And I also outline my concerns about the impact, intended or otherwise, that the internet and the associated social media platforms and digital technologies may have on the brain. Throughout the podcast, you will also hear sound bites from inspiring individuals with incredible brains from science, from technology and from the arts, including authors Sheila O'Flanagan, Sinead Moriarty and Hilary Fannin, biochemist and immunologist Professor Luke O'Neill, Anne O'Dee, CEO of the Silicon Republic and InspireFest and founder of Future Human, Dr. Ruth Freeman, Director of Science for Society at Science Foundation Ireland, Jennifer Dollard, Senior Content Development Manager at ACAST, the world's leading podcast network, and First up, here's what science writer Dr. Claire O'Connell has to say. Claire, you've covered so many different aspects of science and technology throughout your career as a science writer. What are your thoughts around whether we need to give consideration to the impact that technology is having on the human brain? I reckon we should always think of the implications, intended or otherwise, of any technology and not just the implications on the human brain, but on pretty much everything. Um, Sometimes technology can appear to offer an excellent way forward, a shiny fix, but then technical innovation meets the complexity of the world and there are consequences, good or ill, some immediate, some over years or slower burners over centuries. And that includes consequences that few, if any of us, would have anticipated at the outset. So yes, we should try to imagine the implications of technology as much as we can. I think that's a given. But before we pat ourselves on the back and say, well done, now that's sorted, we also need some humility here because science keeps teaching us that biology, global ecosystems, the universe, they're all complex and we need to keep our eyes and our minds open and to remain alert to the kinds of changes that technologies can bring. And that very much includes the changes we didn't anticipate. In practice, that means being transparent, realistic, fair and compassionate when we develop and apply technologies. It also means engaging in research to measure changes, whether that's changes to our planet, our brains, our societies, like how technology can marginalise people and communities. And it means paying honest attention to what we find and asking ourselves if we can really afford the price of the convenience or speed or comfort that a particular technology brings. To echo what Claire just said, scientific research into the challenges that technology can bring about is critical if we want to make informed choices about our collective future. I want to start by looking at one of those very slow burners that Claire referred to. 
The human brain has increased rapidly in size over the last 2 million years. A surge in brain growth occurred about 1.8 million years ago and the brain doubled in size in the following 600,000 years. However, this growth ceased about 200,000 years ago and over the last 10,000 years the average size of the human brain relative to the size of the human body has shrunk by about 3 to 4%. What's that all about? Of course, size isn't everything. It is possible that the brain has evolved to be more efficient by making better use of less grey matter. It's also possible that these changes are a response to our environment, which has transformed dramatically over that same period. Innovations that enhance our ability to hunt, eat high protein and transform food through fire have had incredible influence on the size and evolution of the brain. Because the human brain has innovated technologies to aid our survival, the evolution of the brain itself has included adaptation to the environment generated by those inventions. Technological advancement is also helping us to unlock the secrets of the human brain and human behaviour, allowing, for example, social media giants and others to understand and harness the brain's reward and other systems to influence human behaviour for financial and political gain. Imaging technology that allows us to record the living, functioning human brain reveals a new pattern of brainwaves that appears to only occur during text messaging. At this point in time, my greatest concern about the impact of tech on the human brain relates to the potential that communication technology has to reshape the brain and our ability to interact socially and then, as a consequence, how that might in turn affect our our wider societal behaviours and indeed society's structure. Ironically, my concerns are informed by what we have learned about the human brain thanks to technologies that allow us to see how a single brain cell changes with learning or track what areas of the brain are activated in a living brain while its human owner carries out a memory test or makes decisions that involve risk and reward. Thanks to recent scientific and tech advances, we now know that the human brain is highly responsive to experience. Your brain is flexible, it's adaptable, it can change by reorganizing itself and growing new connections between neurons. Essentially, the human brain remoulds itself in response to the environment by changing brain architecture and human behaviour. This ability to change with learning is called neuroplasticity, and while it is an inherent property of the human brain, it's not exclusive to humans, but humans do appear to excel at it. The human brain is more responsive to environmental influences than other primates, including our closest relative, the chimpanzee. This pronounced capacity for neuroplasticity, this adaptability, has played a major role and continues to play a major role in the evolution of our species. We have survived and continue to survive because we are adaptable. But the brain's capacity for neuroplasticity also makes us vulnerable and can lead to maladaptation of the brain or brain atrophy. I have no doubt that science and technology will change our brains and our future, but should we blindly accept and adopt technological advancement without question? I don't think so.
Our ability to innovate tools and to solve practical problems has shaped our brains and ensured our survival as a species. We now have a disproportionately large brain that costs a lot of energy to run. For millions of years, the evolution of the human brain has been blind, unguided and shaped not only by the natural environment, as I've already said, but also by the environment generated by human invention, human innovation and human technology. I firmly believe that now is the time to harness our amazing brain power to guide scientific and technological advancement and make informed choices about our future. Choices that consider the consequences, intended and unintended, which have the power to shape our brains, our society, our future, the future of the planet and indeed the future of our species. Just because we can doesn't mean that we should. In a 1997 MTV interview, when David Bowie was asked what he thought the internet would be used for, aside from connecting people, he replied, somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Blackmail and sex, I think, predominantly. In that same interview, when asked what he thought of the net, he said... It's all right, it's just another tool. I'm not wildly excited about it. But two years later, Bowie had changed his tune when he spoke to Jeremy Paxman. I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. It's just a tool though, isn't it? No, it's not. No. No, it's an alien life form. In the 1997 MTV interview, Bowie explained... I tend to have just used the idea of the alien or the otherness of beings as to pinpoint a sense of isolation or alienation, which is slightly, you know, sort of more, more of a psychological thing. And, uh, and they became ciphers for that. Yes, the internet is a tool, but a powerful tool that has huge capacity for alienation. Many movies and novels have captured our imagination by exploring futures populated by robots designed to make life easier for humans. You know how the story goes. In an effort to replicate humans, the robots are designed to learn from experience. Of course, the unintended consequence is that this type of adaptation leads to evolution. And before you know it, the robots are either taking over the world or humans and robots are falling in love with each other or they're trying to kill each other. Luke, in your capacity as an immunologist, you have been keeping the nation here in Ireland informed over the last year about the risks associated with the current pandemic and you've also been updating us on progress in terms of vaccines so I just want to ask you to turn your attention away from your area of expertise and I'm interested to understand what your views are around the risks maybe associated with technology and the internet and outsourcing our memory. Sounds very science fiction to me, but obviously if technology can help our brains, say with diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, that would be a tremendous thing. In terms of memory and downloading of memory and all that stuff, that seems like a long way off. I'd hate to think these new technologies would harm us, but there's always a risk with new technologies that they might do more harm than good. So when it comes to the brain, let's hope we can treat horrible diseases or stop them from starting in the first place, but let's be very careful about anything else that's done with the brain. 
To be honest, I'm not at all worried about the science fiction-y kind of outsourcing of memory and brain function that Prof Luke O'Neill refers to. My concern is about the much more subtle, gradual outsourcing of memory to smartphones and the like. I'm not really worried about robots or replicants replacing or eradicating humans. My concern is actually quite the reverse, that humans are becoming more and more like robots. And again, I think that the change is subtle and gradual. The internet was designed to make humans more connected, but in some ways it has had quite the opposite effect with people having less and less face-to-face contact. Of course, (laughs) that is essential in the context of the current pandemic, but the lack of face-to-face social interaction is something that we know from science has the capacity to change the human brain in the longer term. At the present time, in real life, outside the movies, the most advanced artificial intelligence endeavours to replicate but cannot duplicate the glorious magnificence of the human brain. I am, however, worried about how technology is shaping our brains and social interaction, promoting this social isolation and otherness. Rather than the alien life form that Bowie suggests, I believe that the Internet, which ironically was designed to connect people and give everyone a voice, has become a divisive alienator. The Internet is, of course, a tool, but I would argue with Paxman that it is just a tool. Anne, you co-founded Silicon Republic, which is a leading source for technology, science and startup news. So I'm particularly interested to hear your views on how technology is impacting our brains. Do you think we need to be concerned about the negative impact that technology could be having on our brains? I'm a great believer in technology as a force for good in the world and the tech has greatly enhanced everything from communications to medicine. You only have to look at its vital role during this pandemic. But I think we can all appreciate that in recent years it has shown itself to be a very destructive force too. But to be honest, I think we sometimes confuse technology with, for example, social media. And without question, social media has shortened our attention spans, made us easily distracted, and in many cases made us deeply unhappy. I think as we strive to close the digital divide and improve digital literacy, which is very, very important, it is going to be crucial that any related curriculum come with its health warnings and with actual training on things like tech addiction and on how to switch off and hear the birds sing. A lot of neuroimaging studies investigating internet use focus on adolescents classified as excessive internet users. And multiple studies report grey matter atrophy, so that means loss of brain cells in internet and gaming addiction, in the frontal lobes of the brain, which are a part of the brain that are critical for important functions like risk assessment, decision making and planning, as well as impulse control. Atrophy is also reported in a part of the brain involved in the development of empathy empathy and compassion, which are critical for forming personal relationships. The connections between brain cells, the white matter is also compromised. And studies also show less efficient processing of information, reduced impulse control, increased sensitivity to rewards and insensitivity to loss. Now, while it is indeed very helpful to understand how addiction changes the structure and functioning of the brain in those who are addicted to internet and gaming, 
we need more research to understand the impact on the brains of those who are not excessive users, which is somewhere between 95 and 98% of users. So, I mean, the logic being the impact on the brain wouldn't just suddenly happen at a point where you become an excessive user. One would imagine that this runs on a scale or a dimension and that some people may be more vulnerable to change than others. Sinead, as an author of 14 novels, you don't work in the spheres of science and technology. What are your views? Do you have any concerns about the impact that technology could be having on our brain? As a mother to two teenagers and a teenager, I have to say that I do worry about technological advances and the effect they have on my children's brains. The fact that they spend so much time staring at screens worries me. I'm a writer and so I believe passionately in the power of switching your mind off and relaxing while reading a book and allowing your own imagination to come up with the images to go along with the book that you're reading. So this constant barrage of images and information and the fact that kids now find it so hard to concentrate really worries me. So I think we um, as parents um, and we as responsible citizens need to take a very long hard look at the technology that is now ruling our lives. I myself am addicted to my phone and it does worry me and I am taking steps to try and change that. For example, switching it off at night uh, so that I get really good quality time to read. So it does worry me and I do think it is something that we need to address. If, like Sinead, you are concerned about the impact of the internet on your teens and tweens, or if indeed you are a teen or a tween yourself, tune in to Thursday's episode when I will share some of the science on the impact of screen time on brain structure and function. If you'd like me to address a specific question or you have a specific comment to make, please email me at info at superbrain.ie or at me on Twitter or Instagram. Earlier, Anne O'Dea drew a distinction between technology and social media. And there is, of course, value in doing that. But would we or could we have one without the other? There would be no social media without the technology that supports it. And I think that it is a critical area to consider the impact of social media, given that we are social beings and given that we have evolved in social groups. Technology, social interaction and the evolution of the human brain are inextricably linked. Our use of tools has influenced our evolution and sets us apart from other species. Given that chimpanzees, our closest living relatives, make use of tools for hunting and foraging ants, it's likely that our ancestors were already using wooden tools when they diverged from chimps four million years ago. Track forward to 2.6 million years ago, we have progressed to using stone tools. So while hominids from that time still had relatively small brains, they had not only started to use fist-sized chunks of rock for pounding, they had started to fashion stone tools. They made sharp flakes by striking hard stone against quartz, flint or other rock that can hold an edge. They now had the technology to butcher animals, cutting through tough hide, getting at protein-rich meat from the bones and also breaking bones open to access the nutritious marrow. Tools were fashioned as needed, used and then discarded and this remained the extent of technology for nearly a million years. 
About 1.8 million years ago, our lineage changes and the technology our ancestors are using is remarkably different. They now have hand axes and cleavers that require much more advanced cognitive abilities. The type of abilities needed to process the spatial information and the shape information in fashioning those tools. About one and a half million years ago, we come to a pivotal point in the evolution of the brain when our ancestors learned to control fire. At this point, they have descended from the trees, they're walking on two feet, and they've evolved thumbs, which enable the fine motor skills that allowed them to make and use complex tools. The brain had been gradually increasing in size over the preceding five million years, but we see a sudden upsurge in brain growth from about 1.8 million years ago. Why? Well, one theory is that Homo erectus harnessed fire to cook food and by so doing doubled its brain size in just 600,000 years, resulting in a brain that is remarkably large for the size of the body it belongs to. While the human brain is just 2% of the human body, it consumes 25% of the calories we need to function every day. The human brain is actually three times larger than a gorilla brain, but our bodies are significantly smaller. To find out whether cooking could really have conferred this cerebral advantage in humans, neuroscientist Susanna Herculana Hutzel and her team calculated the metabolic cost of servicing bodies and brains. First of all, she calculated how many neurons there are in the human brain. She did this by dissolving donated brains, destroying the cell membranes, but leaving the nuclei of the cell intact. And this allowed her to count the number of cells in a sample. Once they figured out that we have 86 billion brain cells, they carried out comparisons to other animals, which revealed that human brains are proportional in terms of the number of neurons and the energy they use compared to other primates. Our brain is just larger. It costs six calories to run a billion neurons a day. Orangutans can only afford 30 billion neurons because that's the amount of brain power they can support because that requires them spending eight to nine hours a day chowing down on raw food. So how come humans with a smaller body have bigger brains than the great apes? Well, it seems that primates can only consume enough calories to support either large brains or large bodies, but not both. So the apes have the brawn and the humans have the brains because we cook. If our ancestors, Homo erectus, had continued to consume raw food, they would need to spend, at a conservative estimate, at least eight hours a day chewing. Add in time for foraging for food and sleep, and there's not a lot of time left to do anything else. If we had continued to eat like primates, we would never have evolved in the way that we have. By the time Homo sapiens emerges about 200,000 years ago, their brains have not only doubled in size, but there are also notable changes in the shape of the brain, with most notably increases in the regions of the brain involved in advanced cognition and expansion. So we see this expansion of the cerebral cortex, the thinking part of the brain, the crinkly bit on the outside part of our brain. It's likely that these changes in size and shape of the brain occur 
occurred as a consequence of dealing with and learning from environmental challenges, competitive and cooperative challenges, from learning to make tools and from living in social groups and from social learning. Our ancestors sacrificed brawn for brain by harnessing fire and cooking technology. Cooking cost our ancestors muscle mass, but they gained time and they gained brain power. And both time and brain power could be used to develop technologies to give our ancestors an edge in competition and an edge in terms of accessing food and allow them to outsmart our bigger competitors and predators. Like many advances in science and technology, the doubling in brain size may well have been the consequence of a happy accident. There are several theories around how our ancestors may have harnessed fire and developed cooking technologies. We don't know for sure, but it's likely a combination of multiple happy accidents, whether that be eating the charred remains of a bushfire, the equivalent of modern day roadkill, I suppose, or somehow managing to keep natural fires burning or using stone on stone to make tools or access food that may have then sparked fire. Who knows? But the food, the unintended consequence on our brain led to the expansion of our brain. No doubt the use of tools and fire gave our ancestors access to more protein, which contributed in some way to the rapid expansion of the brain. But heating food really is the key because it unlocks nutrition. 100% of a cooked meal is metabolized and converted to energy, whereas when you consume raw food, only 30 to 40% of the nutrients are metabolized. So our ancestors spent less time chewing for more calorific reward, and this also meant they spent less time looking for food. This gave our ancestors more time to think, more time to make tools in a social setting around a campfire, more time to come up with better ways to hunt, more time to hone their skills, to observe and to learn from each other, more time to educate each other, more opportunities to share skills with each other and pass on skills and learning to next generations, more opportunities to acquire knowledge and to collaborate and to innovate and to plan and to imagine all of the activities that modern science tell us promote neuroplasticity, creating a bigger and more densely connected cerebral cortex and frontal lobes and an increase in brain size. Hilary, do you think the time has come for us to, you know, pause and take stock and look at what technology, the impact that it may be having on our brains? I don't think we really have an awful lot of choice about um I don't think we're going to be able to slow down technological advancements um that are currently transforming our brains. And whether that's a good or a bad thing I don't know, but I suppose what I think and especially having worked with young people, where you worked with young writers, kids under the age of 18, I would love to see a kind of balance within our schools within our educational environments, a balance towards creativity. Uh, towards performative work, writing, drawing, painting. It sounds so simple, but sometimes I think we lose sight of those functions in a technological world. And I know at any age how important these things are. There's nothing like giving a child one-to-one attention around something that they are creating out of their souls as well as their heads. I'd love to see that balance happening. Maybe I sound very naive. I try to maintain that balance in my own life too. 
she's so right about the importance of allowing time for creativity. We have so much access to technology and so much easy access, you know, it's at our fingertips that we save little time for anything else. And we forget that the brains of our ancestors became bigger and better because they used technologies in ways that freed up time for them to create and innovate, which is really what Hillary was talking about. Modern imaging technology has revealed that when we're in a relaxed state, not actively engaged or in or focused on a specific task, when we let our brains idle, when we allow ourselves time to daydream, a network in the brain, the default mode network, actually becomes more active. Neuroscientists, including myself, believe that this is where creativity and insight and ideas can emerge. Essentially, when the brain is left to idle in this state, it is not actually idle but is searching for solutions to problems or scanning for patterns amidst the vast knowledge and experience held within and that is the source of creativity. As Hilary points out, we need more balance. We need to afford more time for creativity. And as Anne pointed out earlier, we need time in nature. You know, science tells us that nature is restorative. Jennifer, you're a techie. Um, Do you think the time has come for us to put some checks and balances in place in terms of monitoring the impact that the internet and digital tools, etc. could be having on our brains? I'm quite conflicted on this because on one hand, I grew up on a rural farm in Ireland with no internet and three TV channels on on a good day. You know, when we wanted to light a fire, we chopped wood. And when we wanted to cook food, we dug vegetables from the garden. But on the other hand, I now work in a tech company and I work in a place called Silicon Roundabout in London. I love tech and it forms a huge part of my life. But I also really love the quiet life. And I'm not massively convinced that one has affected my ability to do or enjoy the other. But allowing technological advancement to transform our brains might change that so I think on balance I think I'd like us to pull back and find out what a modern you know technology-led world is doing to our brains. Podcasting technology allows me to connect to thousands of people and I don't know how many of us would have survived lockdown without access to the internet and to social media. There are definitely huge benefits for society and with most technological advancements, there are both positives and negatives. So let's take the invention of electric light, for example. People were, of course, initially cautious, but in a very short period of time, people adopted this new technology. And now the vast majority of the world defies nature every single day by using electric light. Sleep is a human behaviour that is critical to our survival and fundamental to our physical, mental and brain health. Yes, electric light, the technology is amazing and it has facilitated further technological advancement, but it has also contributed to a sleep loss epidemic where one in three people are sleep deprived in ways that negatively impact on their physical, mental and brain health. I spend much of my time now giving talks to people who want to sleep better, who live with insomnia and one of the best ways to do that is to dim the lights in the evening time, to ditch the devices that emit blue light for at least an hour before bed and to spend at least an hour more, if you can, out in natural daylight. When it comes to the internet revolution, How it has affected brain development remains an open question. 
Sheila, do you have any concerns about modern technology, about our ability to outsource our memory to digital devices like our phones? The concept of storing knowledge outside our own heads to be accessed when we need it isn't new. That's why before the internet we had encyclopedias and it's why we still have libraries. So the idea of outsourcing our knowledge and memories to a device, whether it's a book or digital, is normal. As an author, I love how technology allows me to do in-depth research into diverse topics, even though I only use and remember a small portion of it. So I don't think the problem is not using our memories to access information. The problem is what we do with the vast amounts of what we access and consume. The part of our brain that seems to be struggling with information-led technology is the part of our brain that knows what to do with that information, the part that knows how to analyse it and how to be critical of it. And that part seems to be shrinking. That's what worries me the most. That was author Sheila O'Flanagan, and I want to echo what she says, really. With every advance, there is concern, some warranted, some not, about what impacts the latest innovation might have on our health, on society or on our morals, on our memory. You know, hey, even Plato expressed concerns that writing would impact on memory function. He predicted that writing would lead to forgetfulness in those who learn to use it. You know, now we can regularly outsource our memories to digital devices and I frequently get asked whether I think this will impair human memory function and lead to atrophy in the brain. And my answer is always the same. Well, really, that depends on how you make use of those external memory drives. Writing, books, everything, they have allowed us access to incredible amounts of knowledge. Knowledge that up until the invention of writing had to be stored in the brain, which has a limited capacity. So as Sheila touched on, once we know where we can access information, that's the bit of memory that we need to hold on to. We don't actually have to hold on to the content of the memory. Once we know how to get at it, we can then use that in other ways. And really, when it comes to using devices to support memory, I use them all the time. I couldn't survive without my Google Calendar, my phone. I have two laptops in front of me now as I'm recording this podcast. My answer really is, it really depends on how you make use of those external memory drives, the phones and the laptops and the software. I use them to outsource parts of my memory. I'm very good at how I use them. You know, if an appointment comes in, it goes straight into my Google Calendar, then I don't have to worry, etc. A reminder will come in and I am freeing up resources that I can use on other challenging activities like doing this podcast or writing my book or whatever. So as with anything, it really depends on how you use the freed up resources. So just as cooking technology freed up time and offered opportunities for our ancestors to engage in activities that enhance brain function, digital memory devices can offer us the same opportunity, but with that comes a choice. You can choose to use those freed up brain resources to engage in activities that enhance your brain, or (laughs) if you don't choose to make that choice, you do risk losing some of your brain power since your brain can't to support or waste energy on brain cells that are not being used. Cooking and fire offered increased opportunity for social interaction and social learning. Social structure drives learning forward. It also produced language. Group living and social interaction are complex cognitive activities that require considerable brain power that help to explain the enormous expansion of the frontal regions of the human brain. 
It's the last part of the brain to evolve and the latest to develop. It is the part of the brain that bestows evolutionary advantage, allowing us to plan, predict, make decisions and inhibit our behaviour. It's also the part of the brain that is negatively impacted in the excessive use of the internet that I spoke about earlier. The modern technology that we're using and social media and all of our devices are limiting face-to-face -face social interaction. And in a way, it's gradually changing our social structures. Now, we know from science that humans don't do well in isolation. Being isolated changes our brain structure and it also changes how our brain functions. Our amygdala actually goes into overdrive and we move from reflective behaviour to reflexive behaviour. We start to see danger where there's none and we also lose social skills and our ability to empathise. We prioritise self-preservation over everything else. Given the role that socialization has played in the evolution of the brain, we would be mad not to consider how the rapid changes in social structure and social communications and how we interact socially are having. We really need to increase our scientific understanding so that we can make informed choices about our future. So not to labour the point, but control of fire, cooking and tool making led to increased sociality and language and increased our intelligence and produced a larger brain. The brain patterns associated with language and tool making are correlated and our socially active, innovating brains allowed us to thrive and to continue to evolve. Now, earlier in this episode, at the start of this episode, I think I mentioned that over the last 10,000 years, our brains have shrunk by 3 to 4% relative to the size of our bodies, with a bit of a rebound in the last 100 years. Now, according to some schools of thought, now not ones that I personally subscribe to, the human brain has fully evolved. The argument is that natural selection has ceased, thanks to modern medicine, to the Industrial Revolution and to technological advancement, we inhabit a safe and prosperous environment that according to proponents of this viewpoint that it exempts us from natural selection. Now I don't buy that. My belief that we are still evolving is supported by human genome scans of hundreds of human genes that show positive natural selection. And yes, it's true that over the past 10,000 years human innovation and tool making has interfered with natural selection. But it's also critical to remember that these technologies are also evolving. The human brain excels at adaptation to our environment and not just our natural environment but also the artificial environment built by our own innovation and our own technologies. Humans adapt and evolve. That's what we do. The conserved energy from fire and cooking, together with socialisation and language, allowed us to evolve bigger brains which we have continued to use for innovation and technological advancement. Staying on that theme of food, what have we done with our bigger, better brains? Well, we have developed preservatives, refrigeration, fast food, mass production. We now have immediate access to all of the foods that we could ever consume for very little calorie cost. It's also been transformed markedly from its original state. Now, obviously, transforming food by fire conferred an evolutionary advantage on us, but I'm not so sure about the evolutionary advantage of adding preservatives, etc. But the conserved energy that we have by now being able to store copious amounts of food in our refrigerator 
has led to considerable health problems and chronic disease, including cardiovascular disease, which is caused by poor diet and lack of exercise, obesity, cardiovascular disease. Obesity and cardiovascular disease and lack of exercise also directly damage the brain, including memory function, and they increase our risk for developing dementia. And that's not to mention the impact of poor nutrition on the brain. So what do we do? We develop more technology to solve the problem created by the first technology. So we develop medication to treat these chronic diseases. We build gyms to give us places where we can exercise to imitate the kind of exercise that we used to get in the past, the aerobic exercise and the strength building exercises and the dexterity and the balance ability. And we create smart devices. Social structure, advanced human intelligence, language, knowledge, interaction, expanding the brain. And what have we done with social structure? Now, we have innovated ways that promote isolation. You know, we live in houses and measure success by how big a box we can isolate ourselves in. We've moved away from community. We now live and work remotely. Isolation changes, as I've already said, how the brain works and lack of social interaction is associated with impaired cognition. We need the complexity of group living and we need social interaction and we need to understand how technology is changing our brains so that we can make informed choices about our future. If we want to hold on to the competitive advantage afforded by our brilliant brains, we all need to play our part. We need to have this conversation. We need to come together. We We need to choose our own future. There's no doubt that the technologies of today impact on our brains, sometimes positively. Only this week, we saw the first new drug for Alzheimer's disease for 20 years, and sometimes negatively. We've all heard about how addiction to social media can be mediated by dopamine, our brain getting a feel-good hit from a new notification. We realize now that the internet was embedded in our lives before we had time to consider any possible negative implications. From now on, I think that we need to engage a broad range of people to think about shaping the technologies that will certainly shape our futures. That was Ruth Freeman, the Director of Science for Society at Science Foundation Ireland, taking approximately 40 seconds to say what I've spent the past 40 odd minutes trying to say. I do hope that this podcast has given you food for thought and I hope that it will prompt you to take an active interest in using science to choose your future. One way to get cracking on that is to join this conversation. Send me any thoughts, comments or questions that you have to info at superbrain.ie and I will endeavour to address them this week or in a future episode of Superbrain. A huge thank you to Science Foundation Ireland for sponsoring this podcast and indeed for sponsoring Science Week. Don't forget to check out scienceweek.ie for the full list of events and activities that include the Science Week Virtual Family Day on Sunday November 14th with fun for all including interactive workshops shows and live quizzes then there is the mirror trap this sounds really interesting a virtual headphone experience a horror story about psychology and quantum physics that has been described as weirdly trippy and unsettling 
One other event that jumped out at me takes place on Friday, November 13th. The event is called Bias and it features some of Ireland's leading experts in gender bias in medicine and in women's health and the importance of women's participation in research to ensure advances in women's health. As it happens, I wrote a feature for The Times on this topic very recently, so I will definitely be attending that event. I'll include a link to my feature article on that topic in the show notes. My life has changed dramatically since I embarked on a career in science 16 years ago. Aspire with Abbott in association with Science Foundation Ireland is a virtual exhibition which offers a unique experience where attendees can connect with STEM personalities and industry experts throughout Science Week to discuss careers in STEM as well as a virtual exhibition hall where they can download free resources. Check out scienceweek.ie to get the full list of these fabulous events. And why not visit Science Foundation Ireland's website, sfi.ie, to learn more about their work. My name is Sabina Brennan. You have been listening to a special episode of Superbrain for Science Week, sponsored by Science Foundation Ireland. Stay safe and use science to choose your best future.